0: Thank you for your word. Thank you for these wonderful verses we've been looking at this term and just how much they can speak to us and how much we can use them to speak to others and help us as we look at this particular verse tonight, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we come to, I guess the verse that's been used more often in the Bible than almost any other uh, to bring people to faith. It was one that was hugely uh, influential in my own Christian beginnings, and I suspect I'm not the only person here. It's Revelation chapter 3, Revelation 3, 14 to 22 is the passage we're looking at, and 320 comes in the middle of it. So you can find on page 1,236 of the Bibles that you have with you, 1,236. And in the middle of it, the Lord Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him, and he with me. As I said, I think this is the first Bible verse that ever made a real impression on me. I remember vividly hearing it for the first time. November the 11th, 1973, Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge. Now some of you may know it. If not, next time you're in Cambridge, go and see it because it is a historic church, not because that's where I was converted, but for much more important reasons than that. I discovered afterwards, I had no idea at the time, but it is one of the most historic churches in the city. It's a church where a man called Charles Simeon was vicar for nearly 50 years. Uh, He was a man who had a huge influence upon many students and indeed upon the whole Church of England. When he was first appointed as a young man to be vicar there, he was so unpopular that his services were frequently interrupted. He was often insulted in the streets, but gradually he overcame public prejudice and he subsequently gained a remarkable and lasting influence upon many, many people and many undergraduates in the university. He was a founder member of the Church Mission Society, which is the main mission society of the Church of England. There is still a patronage trust that's named after him, known as the Simeon Trust, patronage trust for those who look after churches and ensure uh, ministers can take over and there's one still named after him, the Simeon Trust. According to the historian Thomas Macaulay, Charles Simeon's influence and authority extended from Cambridge to the most remote corners of England. His real sway in the church was far greater than that of any primate, any archbishop. He did exercise an extraordinary influence and it was in this church, Holy Trinity Cambridge, that he was minister for so many years. Well, that's the church where I was converted as I've said before. I went on there one Sunday evening with a group of friends, and someone spoke very simply on Jesus is Lord. And at the end of it, he challenged us what we were gonna do about it. And he spoke on this verse at the end of it, Revelation 3, verse 20. I know uh, there were about 600 people in the church that night, but I honestly thought that I was the only one. It was like there was nobody else there. I don't know why I was sitting. I was sitting about where, where Charles is actually, something like that in the church. And I I kind of felt the speaker was always looking in my direction. And the thing was, everything he said seemed to be aimed at me and all the excuses I'd ever raised against the Christian faith. And just when I thought, okay, okay, I give up. Okay, what do I do? He explained this verse to me. He challenged me whether I really believed in Christ, and if so, would I invite him into my life? And he used the picture of Revelation 3.20. And here is a picture of the verse, which many of you may also have seen. By Holman Hunt, called The Light of the World. And again, it's been a picture that's used to describe or explain this verse for many, many people. There are two copies of the original one's in Keble College, Oxford, the other one is in St. Paul's Cathedral. You can go to both places and see the picture there today. I, I think I may have mentioned this before, but when Mikhail Gorbachev, the, uh, was it the, General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, the man who was responsible for opening up the Soviet Union, for perestroika, in the early 80s. He came on a visit to the UK in the 80s, and he went to St. Paul's Cathedral in London. And a friend of mine had the responsibility of looking after him. And he took him to this picture. He showed it to him. He explained it to him. And apparently Gorbachev was utterly fascinated by it. He spent ages just looking at the picture and thinking over it. Well, who knows? What influence that had, we don't know. But nevertheless, it is a very, very powerful verse, and it's a very powerful picture. We'll come to it a little bit later. But I want to recap on where we are so far in our great verses. It's kind of good to recap from time to time, because as I hope you rise they follow the pattern, and that's deliberate. We began by looking at the nature of God. From Revelation, Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. Do you remember, you are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you have created all things, and by your will they have been created and have their being. So God, the great creator, worthy of all our worship and glory. Then we look to the person of Christ from Colossians 1.15, who is the image of the invisible God. So if we want to know what God is like, we look at the Lord Jesus. He is absolutely the perfect representation of God. But then, of course, we saw the problem of the world, and we ourselves, is our sin. We have all sinned. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And as a result, there is a barrier between us and God, the barrier of sin. Now, we try all manner of ways to overcome it by our own efforts. But, of course, they're never enough. As we see from Romans 3.20, By works of the law shall no man be justified. We can't do it. We cannot, by our own efforts, overcome that barrier that cross that great chasm but what we could not do the Lord Jesus Christ did for us in dying on the cross 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God an exchange takes place so we can cross over to be with God well how do we do that By receiving Christ and that's what we looked at last week John 1 12 to 13 to all who received him who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of God so all we have to do is receive him well how do we do that and our verse tonight is just an explanation of how we receive Christ it's a picture of what it means and how we do it now there are two reasons for doing this kind of series and covering these verses the first is to make sure that we ourselves know what it's all about it may be that some of us have never really made that first step see the big revelation for me was realizing that there was something i had to do i always thought i was a christian Uh, i had uh, christian ministers in my family my grandfather was an ordained minister in fact my great-great-grandfather was also an ordained minister but unfortunately he kept two families at the same time so he caused great embarrassment in the family But nevertheless, we had ordained people in the family, we were used to going to church, and I thought just by virtue of that, I was already a Christian. Until somebody explained there was something I had to do. Maybe some of us have never really grasped that, never really made that first step. But there is another reason for doing that, and that is to help us pass it on. See, I wonder how easy we find it to explain the gospel to somebody else. Have you ever been in that situation? You know, what is a Christian? How do I become a Christian? What's it all about? And just to be able to point to a few verses in the Bible to remind us is an enormous help. That's why they're on our book card, some of these verses, to help us explain it. And if we can know these verses and are able to point to them, it'll be such a difference in explaining the gospel to somebody else. Well, here we are. Revelation 3, verse 20. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. It's in this letter that the Lord Jesus writes to seven churches in Asia Minor, in Revelation 2 to 3. It's the last of the seven churches he addresses. It's the church of Laodicea. And it is the only church which the Lord Jesus has no words of praise at all. Now you may have been here, when we looked at it a bit last year, but I'm gonna cover some of the same ground again because I think it's really important to understand what Jesus is saying. Laodicea was very important due to the position uh, that it was in, in Asia Minor. we get got a little picture of it here. It's on the road from Ephesus in the, on the coast to Syria in the east. Main trade route. It's in the valley of the Lycus River as the cl- road climbed up to the central plateau. As you came into the city by the Ephesian gate, you left by the Syrian gate and there is a high street leading from one end to the other. It was a great commercial and strategic centre. And as a result of the peace uh, given by Rome, the town grew and grew. One of the great things about being part of the Roman Empire is the Romans guaranteed the Pax Romana. They guaranteed to every citizen who lived within their empire that they would live at peace. And as a result of the peace that came to Laodicea, the town grew and grew. Pliny, the Roman writer, called it a most distinguished city. And there were three things in particular that marked it out. First, it was a great banking and financial center. So when Cicero, the Roman writer and a lawyer, traveled in Asia Minor, it was at Laodicea that he cashed his checks. In 61 AD apparently it was destroyed by an earthquake, but it managed to rebuild itself, refusing any help from the Romans. And they were very proud of that. And they boasted of their riches. And maybe it was because they were so wealthy they felt they had no need of God. But it was a very wealthy financial center. Secondly, it was known for its textiles. The sheep around Laodicea apparently had a special soft, glossy wool. It was much prized. And so it mass-produced cheap outer garments. One of them was called the trimeter, And it was so well-known, the city was often called Trimitaria. It was very well-known for its textiles. So when Christ calls them naked, it would have had a very wounding sort of significance for them because they prided themselves on their clothes. And then thirdly, there was a medical school there. Originally there was one a few miles away, but it had moved to Laodicea some years before. And it was now known for two particular things. It was ointment for ears and eyes. And this ointment was taken all over that part of the world in the form of tablets, like little rolls. So the word eye salve in Greek is taken from the word for little rolls. It was very effective and it was well known for it. Now as I say of all the churches in Asia, Laodicea is the only one for which the Lord Jesus Christ has no word of praise because they had become apathetic, neither hot nor cold, neither one thing nor the other, neither pro-Christ nor anti-Christ, just lukewarm. And So the Lord Jesus, I want to spit you out of my mouth. I want to spew you out because I hate it. Now again, this accusation had a special resonance because opposite Laodicea on the other side of the valley was Hierapolis, which was famous for its hot mineral springs. Now, when this water came into Hierapolis, uh, it was very hot. But as it went down the valley, it got cooler. It was cold at the bottom of the valley, here in in Laodicea. It was lukewarm. And Jesus says, the water in Laodicea is lukewarm, but it says nothing to the lukewarmness of your faith. Indifferent, apathetic, complete barrier to Christian growth. Indifference is a deadly danger, isn't it, for the Christian, for those who want to follow Christ? It's often been said that an author can write a good biography if he loves his subject or if he hates him or her, but not if he's indifferent, because he's not interested. And indifference just means we're not really interested. And there are many Christians who are indifferent, and there are many non believers who are indifferent. And it's sometimes hardest to speak to them. See, some people lap it up. They love it. Some people hate it and get very angry. But at least it has a reaction. The hardest of all is the person who doesn't care. William Barclay put it like this. Indifference is like a kind of icy death in which everything has ceased to matter. The problem of modern evangelism is not hostility to Christianity. It would be better if it were so. The problem is that to so many, Christianity in the church has ceased to have any relevance at all. And Men regard them with complete indifference, and indifference is the hardest of all barriers to break down. It can only be broken down by the actual demonstration in life that Christianity is a power to make life strong and a grace to make life beautiful. See, as a result, you see the church in Laodicea was totally ineffective because it was so lukewarm and indifferent. Now in particular, Christ, as we look at the past, he says three things about them they would have hated in verses 17 and 18. You say, I am rich. I've acquired wealth and don't need anything. But you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put in your eyes so that you can see. You see, the three things they prided themselves on was their wealth, their clothes, And their eye salves and the lord jesus says if only you knew what you really need need, is not financial wealth it's spiritual wealth and actually you see you are pitifully poor see what you need is not human physical clothes it's spiritual clothes you see what you really are he says is naked you talk about your great eye salve and great medicine but actually you are blind You can't see. What you need is spiritual eye See, true wealth is riches in heaven. And that's what Jesus is saying. The wealthiest person in the world may well have nothing in God's eyes. Equally, the poorest person in the world can have everything. The Apostle Paul writes, having nothing and yet possessing everything. And there is that possibility for every one of us who is a follower of Christ. Whatever we have, a lot or a little, our real riches are in heaven. See, again, you can be the best dressed person in the world. You can be clothed from all the designer catalogues. You can all have all the latest Nicole Farhi or Karl Lagerfeld or Versace or whatever it is. And yet in God's eyes to be utterly naked. But Christ offers us the robes of righteousness. And these are the robes that will take us to heaven. We can have the best medical schools, the best medicine, the best doctors. Have the best eyesight. And yet still be spiritually blind. And ultimately, that's what really matters. It's only if we have spiritual sight that we will see the things of God. And you see, the people in Laodicea were placing their confidence in all the wrong things. And it's true today. People do exactly the same thing. You look at the weekend magazines and papers. If you take a Sunday paper, it's just full of stuff, isn't it? All about these things. Health, wealth, clothes. as though these are the things that really mattered. There won't be anything on God or on spiritual issues, or if so, very, very little. That's what it's all about. And so often, dare I say, the church just apes what the world is doing. We get more and more caught up with worldly things, with money, with wealth, with success, with clothes and so on. And the more we are, the harder it is to find God. Well, that was true of these Christians in Laodicea. And so the Lord Jesus puts before them a choice, judgment or repentance and restoration. Judgment and mercy always go together in the Bible. Yes, there is a threat of judgment that is always held against us if we disobey and we rebel against God. And the world doesn't like to hear that, but it's very clear in the Scriptures. But at the same time, there's always the offer of mercy. We can never presume upon God's grace, but neither should we ever despair of it. And so he says, verse 16, Because you are lukewarm, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Fascinating little phrase that, because the mineral water of the hot springs in Hierapolis had a tendency to make people sick. And he would have reminded them of that. And it's a very vivid expression to note, how God would dispense with them and disown them. You see, God is not mocked. If we play around with him, then one day he will spew us out. And this is being said, remember, to a church, to so-called Christian people. See, God is sometimes so fed up with churches that maybe he wants to disown them. And I guess we can be lukewarm, self-satisfied, proud. And so much so that God wants nothing to do with us. All the services, all the pomp, all the choruses, all the meetings of the world don't change that. What matters is a change of heart. But that is the alternative. And that's the invitation, the wonderful invitation of Revelation 3 verse 20. You see, when we're rebelling against God or ignoring Him or lukewarm, there's always the invitation to come back and in verse 20 he says this, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him, and he with me. There is a way back. There is always a way back. By returning to Christ and opening the door. Are you lukewarm Christian, a self-sufficient Christian? All you have to do is open the door. Have you never turned to Christ at all? All you have to do is open the door and ask him in. It's the details of the picture that I always find so fascinating. Do you notice the weeds around the door? See, obviously this is a door that's remained unopened for a very long time. Christ has been knocking and no one has opened. And so the weeds have grown up. That's a pretty good picture of many people's hearts, isn't it? Notice too where the Lord Jesus Christ is looking. He's not looking at the door anymore, is he? He's looking away. I don't know if you ever go visiting and you knock on people's door and you knock on once, no answer. You knock again, no answer. You think, well, I'll just knock a third time. But you're not really looking because you're expecting to go on somewhere else. And that's what the Lord Jesus is doing. So I'm I'm gonna give up here because this person won't open. He's looking somewhere else. There's a story, and I don't know if it's true or not, of Holman Hunt when he produced this picture. Friend looked at him, thought it was very good, and said, but of course you're right, you've made a mistake. And Holman Hunt said, what's the mistake? He said, there's no door handle. And Holman Hunt said, that's not a mistake. That's deliberate, because the handle is on the inside, and it's for us to open that door. So the point is, will we open it? I don't know if that's the situation that you're in. Maybe you've drifted, and you just need to come back and open the door. Maybe you've never opened the door like me for that first time. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ knocks. You see, he's an amazing grace that he has. He doesn't force his way in. He doesn't demand that we follow him. He, he knocks and says, will you open the door? Will we open it? Will we ask him in? See, the wonderful thing is, and I often show these people this, voice, this verse, I say to them, if we open the door, what will happen? Well, the verse says, I will come in and eat with him, and he with me. And I always say, does he say, I might come in? I may come in, if I'm feeling like it? No, he says, I will come in. I will come in that's his promise to us if we will open the door he will come in so will we open the door and let him in let's pray for a moment and let's just pray the words of that verse and if we've never asked the Lord Jesus into our lives maybe we can do it if we haven't drifted maybe we can ask him back as it were maybe we're lukewarm like the church in Laodicea let's ask God to forgive us and again ask the Lord Jesus back into our lives so that he can truly be on the throne. Let's just be quiet for a moment. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Lord Jesus Christ, please forgive us when we have cold hearts or lukewarm hearts. Please forgive us for those times when we've rebelled against you. When we've relied upon ourselves, we thought that we were clever. We relied on our riches, our human possessions, and not on you. Please forgive us and come back into the throne of our lives, we pray. And help us always to worship you and follow you and put you first. We ask you to help each one of us to open the door to our lives, that you might come and reign there. And we ask it for your namesake. Amen.